Good morning and happy Mother's Day. And happy Mother's Day, Mum, watching in the UK. Uh, I know it was Mother's Day in the UK back in March. I didn't forget, Mum, honest. We just like you to have two Mother's Days. Welcome again to Trinity Heights Virtual Service. Uh, I just want to give a quick reminder here that after the service, we'll be having a Zoom coffee. The Zoom link for that is in the same email you received this morning, which contained the link to this service. During this time of quarantine, we want to use a variety of ways to communicate what we're about as a church. And so for the next few weeks, we're approaching Sunday messages in a conversational dialogue format. So I want to invite you to listen in again this morning to an ongoing conversation that I'm having with Eric Helvey about the vision for Trinity Heights Church. This is the second discussion in our series, A Community of Christians and Skeptics. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to everyone listening. My name is Eric Helvey and I'm here with Stephen Chung. Thanks for chatting this morning, Stephen. Hey, sure thing. Good morning. Uh, I really enjoyed our talk last week. And if you missed our discussion, uh, just to recap a bit, last Sunday we spoke about uh, Trinity Heights and specifically Trinity Heights as a community of Christians and skeptics. Yeah, it's the uh, new tagline on our website, which I I think this better reflects the, the actual makeup of our community. Absolutely. You know, one big takeaway for me from, from our last discussion was your comment about the sacred and secular. Mm. You use the analogy of, of two buckets and uh, one labeled sacred and one labeled secular and how we tend to unwittingly place uh, certain aspects of life into the secular bucket and certain aspects of life into the sacred bucket. And um, just to quote you here, from that last conversation, you said, we as Christians, rather than trying to move aspects of things like art and culture and the intellectual life from the secular bucket into the spiritual bucket, we just need to collapse these distinctions altogether. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'm wrong in saying that that's a radical statement. And I think it's incredibly powerful and deals directly with a lot of issues that Christians face when trying to engage with uh, the real world. Yeah, I think it could be a, a radical statement for those of us living with this sort of dichotomy, which, which obviously I think is a is a false dichotomy, uh, and is part of what I think created this this chasm between the church and and the broader culture. Um, and as because if we don't know how to connect all of life with the with the Christian mm -hmm. narrative, then we're going to end up with this sort of disconnect. That's just naturally going to happen. Right, and. I really did feel that disconnect, I think, early on when I was about 14 and I started uh, developing an interest in painting. Mm. And I know I talked a little bit about this last week and everything, all of my uh, experience with the church tends to be filtered through my experience as an artist. Uh, but I do remember uh, when I was about 14, I, I really got interested in art history, uh, what painting meant, what it meant to be an artist. And by the time I was 16, I had decided that this was what I wanted to commit my, my life to. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a professional artist. And while I was hooked, um, hooked on that idea, I really started to, to feel a kind of a disembodied tension, especially as I started understanding that I didn't really just want to paint pretty pictures or, or just sell paintings, but I actually wanted to be a part of the broader conversation the the larger cultural narrative i wanted my paintings to to speak
into that context. And, and then this somehow led me to, to feel removed or, or somehow outside of the sanctioned territory of the church. Yeah. So, so, so another way, um, people, people might experience what you just described is, is in a sort of wholesale rejection of the, the broader, the broader intellectual culture. And, and it's, and it's not just a, a, in the more emotionally driven, charismatic, uh, church culture, which you might expect, even in those parts of the church, which actually place some really serious value on the intellectual life. Uh, there's, it's like there's this box of, I guess, what you might call sanctioned thinking, and all of our thinking has to be brought into this box or or brought in line with these particular thoughts. Uh, so, so this is this is why I, I've received emails before from people who, in one sense, were very, very, really quite sharp theologically, very smart mm-hmm. people. So a lot of intellectual energy going on in, in, mm-hmm. in their faith in some sense. But right. they were upset with me for even mentioning Jacques Derrida or Frederick Nietzsche uh, from the mm-hmm. pulpit, because what has these errant French or German philosophers got to do with the church and her mission? So, mm-hmm. so Christian spirituality is, is not meant to engage with this kind of conversation. It's like some sort of magisterium, which the Bible really has no access to or, or, or something. Right. There's a distinct separation. So in your case, German philosophers, in my case, maybe uh, controversial modern contemporary painters or paintings, right? Yeah. Um, so, 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 you know, to go back to the, the first time I delivered a sermon in New York City, it was at another church, mm-hmm. where, which mm-hmm. you actually brought up last week. Um, mm-hmm. In that uh, sermon, in that message, I actually did mention the philosopher Jacques Derrida, and right. I'll, I'll always remember that you as an artist and another member of the congregation who was an architect, who, who mm-hmm. like you also wanted to contribute to the ongoing conversation that apparently is happening in architecture, both mm-hmm. of you came up and talked about how Derrida had been influential in some way in your work. And uh, you were just pleased, both of you were pleased that uh, he was being connected to the faith conversation. So right. uh, apparently there's this amazing conversation going on out there with, between philosophy and art and architecture. Uh, they're in conversation with each other. But right. don't bring that in here on a Sunday because we're doing Christianity in here. Mm. So, okay, that's a, a sort of a, a, an iron curtain, you know, being pulled across. Mm. And then we have to live these very compartmentalized lives, never really sure about the, the value of what we're doing or, or how it connects with faith. And I think perhaps even more disturbing is that the predominant culture around the church looks at the church subculture and has in many ways already decided that this Christian narrative thing is, is entirely irrelevant to, to uh, real, real life. Um, so, you know, you'll, you'll, even find, you'll even find churches which emphasize redeeming our work, redeeming, mm-hmm. uh, this is the language that's used, we want to redeem work, we want to redeem art, we want to redeem culture, we want to mm-hmm. produce art and culture. But at the same time, I have to say, that that's going to be a really difficult thing to do if what's actually going on is, is we're siloed off working on our own mm-hmm. Christian, or Christianized projects, right. which, which don't really engage in any serious way with the, the broader conversation that's going on. Yeah, you know, in my experience, no one scolded me for being an artist. You know, if I am right, right, right. It's, it, it's, right. it's not always that. It's not always that blunt or, or overt, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. I think for me, it was just more of a disembodied tension, as I mentioned. But I know yeah. that some others, uh, you know, they, they've had parents who have, um, you know, not approved of of their um, career choice, 
And in, in, in the arts, you do see that a lot. You know, it's kind of this tale as old as time or whatever you want to say, where the the child wants to go off and be an artist and the parent says, well, you'll never make any money in that or we can't support that. That seems too crazy or something. Um, but, you know, all that aside, um, there's still sort of philosophically and theologically, um, there's a lot to wade through. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if you yeah. do come out of belief and you are actually trying to engage with culture uh and there's something about it that that just makes it very difficult for for anyone coming out of the church to to make that leap and i think in a, in a broader sense the church itself is is having a lot of difficulty and we see this in in, in a multitude of ways but they're really having a hard time engaging with this idea of real life or the, or the broader world i don't know how what do you want to say um and then maybe i'm just going to throw this out there but could we could we say that possibly the language that we choose to use in the church or the christianese that we use is, is part of this problem so uh, yeah i mean I, th I think that this is just what this is what happens naturally right when we start to silo off like we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier uh we have we, we naturally develop our own sort of coded language in a way mm -hmm. and and it becomes difficult as you're pointing out to communicate with the broader culture so so look leslie leslie newbigin was a missionary in india i don't know if you've heard of him um for, for decades and so he came back from india after decades over there to the uk and found that the church was shrinking um but you know it's, it's mm -hmm. like the frog in the kettle situation it's happening gradually so you you know you're not really aware that it's going on you don't notice it but because he'd been gone for decades and and on his re-entry into britain he could, he could see it plain as day so the, the church right. was acting as if christendom still existed as, as if that's that's to say as if the church still held some sort of moral sway over society and had this sort of privileged position mm -hmm. in culture. And, and so the, the church was just sort of carrying on speaking the same language they had always spoken mm -hmm. as if the rest of Britain was still speaking the same language. And his point, of mm -hmm. course, was no, there's this massive cultural chasm that has opened up between church culture and the predominant surrounding culture. And, and you are no longer speaking the, the, the same language. That's so interesting. So there really is um, this idea that disconnects and language just add to the cultural chasm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, sometimes it's sometimes it helps to to sort of compare and contrast. So uh, mm -hmm. several different cultures. So um, in somewhere like the Bible Belt, uh, there's there's much more sort of overlap between church and culture. That, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily a good thing. I mean, it could just mean that the church has adopted um, the local mores and interests. It's, it's just gone along with the social political agenda of, of the, the surrounding predominant culture, uh, which is going on yeah. around them. So it's, it's not necessarily a sign of health for the church, but, but there's, this, there's this overlap for good or for bad. Mm -hmm. And when you have that overlap, obviously communication between church and culture at some level mm -hmm. is just going to be, to be easier. But then, mm -hmm. then you then you have a place like New York City where where we are, and in our particular cultural setting, there, there's this there's this chasm that is that a significant chasm has opened up where people are I think more suspicious of the church, and they're more hostile mm -hmm. toward Christian thinking, and uh, millennials come from all over the country. They come to New York City in part in order to be able to leave the church, uh, or they right. leave the church anyway, even though they may not have planned on that. Uh, you know, everyone's talking about how millennials are, are, are leaving the church and not coming back. So, so you know, that's right. that's a chasm. But 
But then you go to the UK and there's this, this is really vast chasm because mm -hmm. you can't even see it on the screen, right? This is that vast because it, right. it's almost like you, you have to span time there. It's like you, like you have to reach across uh, several generations in order to, to communicate. Right. And, you know, we've kind of talked about that, that dynamic in the UK before. And I feel that uh, maybe it's just starting to, to creep in. Uh, and we see this chasm starting to, to form here in New York. And it seems like the UK might be what? I don't know how. Yeah, like you say, three generations ahead. And but, but we can kind of see our own future uh, as far as American culture is concerned, heading in that direction. Um, and I do hear what you're saying as well, because it does seem to me that um, in New York City, the default setting uh, for most people, most sophisticated, whatever, <laughs> New Yorkers, is that they don't want to have anything to do with the church. Just leave me alone. Let me live my life. And, um, and either way, whether you're talking about the UK or, or the, the States, we, we, we just see that there is this problem of this. Uh, complete disconnect. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, uh -huh. I, I think uh, you know. I I, I sometimes uh, joke that if you, if you were to pick up the New York City and drop it in, into Britain, it would it would be their Bible Belt. And I'm I'm only exaggerating just just a, just a little bit there. Just a, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? right. Um, right. But but and what I mean is that there aren't you know any. Uh, millennials leaving the church for the simple reason mm -hmm. that the millennials were never there in the first place and you've got to be right. there in order to leave there right um mm -hmm. gen Xers, you know my generation we didn't leave the church because we were never there i, I wasn't mm -hmm. i wasn't brought up going to church um the baby boomers my parents generation now, now they left the church mm -hmm. the, the, the babies and so the baby boomers in the uk were were really sort of the equivalent of the millennials in, in the us today um so if you, if you want to find a generation of people for whom it was just this normal part of everyday life and it was part of culture mm -hmm. to go to church, you, you have to go back to my grandparents' generation. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, it's looking, looking at all this happening now from across the pond, watching um, millennials in America leave the church, it, you, almost, you almost feel like saying, uh, okay, boomer, you know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, one, of, it's mm -hmm. one of those moments. Um, it doesn't seem rebellious, it seems. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this, is, this is what mom and dad were doing. So, so you know, mm -hmm. with, with these vast cultural chasms, there, there are going to be, uh, there's going to be communication issues. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's essentially, it, it's like uh, shouting uh, across uh, a chasm. When you do that, they're not going to catch every word. Actually, I think, I think it's worse than that. It's like shouting across a chasm in a foreign language. That, that, that's actually more than yeah. Right. So with that picture in mind, it's, it's safe to say that, that the odds aren't good for any kind of healthy communication between church and culture. Yeah. So, so we, we, what that means is that we, just, we can't just carry on talking to the broader culture using the same mm -hmm. old terms, because that, that's the equivalent of the church saying to the world around them, look, we're, we're called to love the world around us, to serve the world around us. Mm -hmm. And it's like going to that world we're meant to love and serve and saying, Here's a dictionary. You learn these mm -hmm. words. Here's this really great language learning podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, go learn our language. And then once you've done that, come back and then we can have a really great conversation. Uh, <laughs> maybe there's Duolingo for the church, uh, for church speak or something. I don't, I don't know. 
Maybe, maybe we could develop that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe we should. Um, so, so, but but in, instead of shouting across the chasm in a foreign language, right? The, the other alternative mm -hmm. would be to try to build some sort of bridge across that 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 chasm. Right. So I understand that what you're saying is that in order to show love, true love, uh, and not just sort of a superficial, you know, we're we're doing the right thing, and so we have to love you, but actually a, a true kind of deep love. We need to use language as a bridge to connect rather than um, sort of lean into our, our old ways where it, it has historically set us apart. Yeah, and I, th I think that that's just true of, of learning natural languages. Look, I, I lived in Mexico for nearly three years, and mm -hmm. I don't think our time there would have been nearly so fun if we hadn't learned Spanish. You know, even if I do speak it with this really horrible accent, um, we, we were actually <laughs> living by this uh, big uh, Volkswagen uh, plant, and mm -hmm. so there were, there were actually a lot of Germans there in, in, our, in our town in Puebla. And so when I uh, opened my mouth to speak, they knew I wasn't American, so their mm -hmm. next assumption was, oh, you must be German. If that gives you any idea how horrible my, my Spanish is, bien feo, bien feo, as they say. But but uh, Julia was Julia was fine. I mean, she she, she was asked a few times if her, her accent was uh, if she was from Spain or something. So uh, yeah. Well, I wish I spoke Spanish just so I could hear your um, your German accent. <laughs> but but the, church, the church is in that uh, kind of cross-cultural situation where, where we have to learn to communicate again. We, we have to learn this, this other language as a, way, as a way of loving people. It's, it's not this other thing. This is a, an act of love. You know. Right. So, you know, obviously miscommunications uh, happen all the time. Language does get in the way of things. But, um, you know, I think that we can try our best. Uh, and, and, and even with our best intentions, you'll still find that, um, that there's going to be glitches or there's going to be problems. And we, we all have stories or personal, you know, examples of, of, of miscommunications, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean um, it, you know, I can get one, one example comes to, to mind right away, which, which actually I just heard this story just three or four weeks ago. Uh, Raf mm -hmm. told me this story. who I, I mentioned him last week. He's an agnostic in our, in our congregation. He, he just... He just told me this story. He said that about when was it? It was about uh, three or four years ago. He was at a house party here in New York City, and mm -hmm. uh, there were several Christians there who started asking him if he knew if his uh, do you know your sins are forgiven. And before he knew it, there were actually five or six of them laying hands on him to pray for him to turn mm -hmm. from his sin and turn from his ignorance and his uh, his blindness. And mm -hmm. he said it was just such a weird experience, and and, and nothing mm -hmm. they said made sense to him. Now, mm -hmm. now, look, obviously, these people were passionate about their faith. They had something mm -hmm. they really wanted to communicate. But their, their verbal and, and their nonverbal communication, frankly, in, in that scenario, well, it, it didn't actually communicate anything they wanted to communicate. I mean, Raf walked away confused. Sure. So even their best intentions weren't enough in that case. Exactly. I mean, mm -hmm. so, so it, it, again, to, to bring it back to your point, it's, it's about the language we're using is, is a key part of all this. Mm -hmm. So t take the word sin, for example, which was at the time just a confusing word to Raph. Uh, um, the, the, the novelist Francis Spufford uh, points out, he says, he says that the word sin is mm -hmm. in our culture associated with stockings and suspender belts and, and uh, too much chocolate or, or generally being a, a little bit uh, naughty or, or something. Mm -hmm. or, or, or sometimes it's associated with... Uh, sort of a, a judgmental 
prudish legalists who just want to you know squeeze the joy uh, out of out of life and, and, and so culturally that that's what the word is associated with so it comes right. with all of this baggage okay but but that's that's not helpful uh, mm-hmm. so we we have to be more explicit and uh, that also means uh, putting it in, in i think in the context of the broader story which has to do with with image bearing reflecting god's image and what the failure to do so might might mean, which is something that right. I hope we can get to expand on on in other conversations. But sure. uh, now, look, I'm I'm not saying right, I'm not saying that we have to jettison the concept of sin. I'm I'm not wanting to drop the Christian narrative altogether. But we we have to find ways to communicate the narratives more clearly. And mm-hmm. I, I think what what we're finding at Trinity Heights is is that we have to be more explicit. We we can't just use shorthand. Uh, we, we have to we have to sort of build each concept up from from the from the ground up. Um, right. So so here's here's an interesting thought, right? Um, do, do you know that game Taboo, right? Where you can't you know sure. you can't yeah, use yeah. certain words and and but you have to mm-hmm. describe something without using the list of words. That yeah. Are banned. yeah. So so can can you have a discussion about let's say sin, repentance, mm-hmm. sanctification, uh, godliness? holiness, redemption, right? All, all of those words. Can you talk about all of those? Sustain an in-depth conversation which actually explores the meaning of those concepts in depth mm-hmm. and sustain that conversation for hours on end but without ever using those particular words, not even once. But, right, but right. I, think, I think that's where we are. I think that's what we have to do. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the surprising, the, the, here's, here's what's great about doing something like that is, is when we learn to do this, we not only make ourselves understood which, which is always mm-hmm. nice but i think we ourselves grow into a better understanding about our own faith uh, the, the the concepts behind the shorthand which we sort of just throw around and band about sort of quite lazily and and, and um carelessly sometimes that the concepts that lie behind that shorthand become much more textured and take on a much more profound um meaning um and mm-hmm. so it, it's look here's here's a, a couple of options you know in the course of our conversation mm-hmm. it, it, occurred to me what we might what we might want to do is we, we can either produce duolingo right uh, for yeah. church speak and and give that to our mm-hmm. our friends who, who are, are skeptics or or uh, we we could uh, create um taboo for christians and and uh, <laughs> <laughs> all with the 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 new trinity heights uh, logo right, right that, that, that's right, <laughs> yeah. right on. There, there are plenty of merch <laughs> opportunities let's do that way <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I completely get what you're saying. I think that you're absolutely right when you say that forcing ourselves to kind of speak outside of the cliches or outside of these tried and true words like holiness or redemption and, and really kind of forcing them, um, well, using different language and somehow that forces us to really adopt it. Uh, in a different way, kind of into the actual uh, threads of our of our being, you know, in, in in a very real way. And I understand it. I think in terms of my own experience growing up in South Africa, I moved there when I was nine, and I lived there till I was eighteen. And uh, I, I went to school and to a, a South African school, and they all had that that British South African accent, right? Where I was, at least they did. And uh, I remember one of my friends just sort of flat out saying, why do you, uh, why do you talk like a cowboy? <laughs> and, 
Yeah, why, why, why yeah. do you talk like a cowboy? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, yeah. Uh, anyway, and that's funny. Somehow, you know, it, it, I immediately understood that first day that, oh, the language or the way that I'm speaking is setting me apart. And if I'm going to, uh, to access a deeper level of relationship or a deeper level of friendship with these, um, with these, these students or this kid who said, I look like a cow. All right. Yeah. Do I look sound, like, sound a like a cowboy? I don't know. I talk <laughs> like a cow. I don't yeah. look like a cowboy, but I might <laughs> sound like one. Um, you know, if I was going to develop, uh, relationships, um, deeper relationships, then I would need to somehow, uh, use language as, as the key. And so I, you know, there wasn't a, a foreign language for me to learn, but there was that British accent that I could somehow take on. And when you're nine, you, you tend to be pretty flexible. And so I think it only took me a couple of weeks. And, and then I was you know, going to school and speaking in a perfectly eloquent British South African accent to the point where, where no one uh, knew that I was American. <laughs> so have you I mean have you can you still pull that out is that something I've, I've never heard you use that is that something you can still do oh uh, Stephen oh yeah okay so for the sake of of this what we're doing here let me try I usually say no to this but uh okay yeah <laughs> you know it's gonna end up sounding like blood diamond which I think is a terrible uh but anyway here we go it's like yeah okay yeah, I mean, it's weird because I, I rarely use this out of my brain anymore, but it's a, but you can hear, I can still whip it out every now and then. But, uh, you know, I'm going to really regret this because we're going to be at a party and someone's going to, from the church or whoever's going to come up and they're going to ask me to do it. And, you know, the answer is just going to be no. <laughs> that sounds pretty authentic to me. But, uh, you know, <laughs> my accent is actually often a source of entertainment too. So so welcome to the, uh, welcome to the club. Um, but... but uh, you know, seriously speaking, though, I, I, look, I, I think that the Christian narrative provides some incredible resources for thinking about all, all of this stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah. Because this, the story we find in, in the Bible says that, that God has, has bridged the, the ultimate cultural chasm, if you like, um, mm. between, between heaven and earth. Right? Think of a, a, a sort of a wider cultural chasm between heaven yeah. and earth. Um, John chapter one says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And, and then he says the word became flesh and dwelt right. among us. And, and it's, it's, it's what we call the Christians call the incarnation. So, so mm -hmm. God incarnating as a human being. And mm -hmm. when we think about this event, we notice there's a sort of specificity about it, about it right? For, for God to become a human. He, he comes to us. Right people a specific generation specific culture he speaks a specific language he adopts specific customs and uh, a yeah. specific set of concerns and, and cultural questions god god doesn't in other words shout across the cultural chasm but in some sense embeds into human culture itself yeah so you're talking about not necessarily adopting a veneer of culture or certain you know little affectations or even in you know maybe in my case, just trying to, to get a perfect accent, but, right. um, but more of this idea of, of humbling yourself to the point of being willing to immerse yourself in, 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 in a context, whatever that context might be. In our case, uh, New York City in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, you know? Right. So, um, and I, I understand going back to, to growing up in South Africa and being a kid there, I distinctly remember that uh, it wasn't just the accent, but it, it was a lot more. It was more of a of an internal experience of 
of, of leaving things behind or letting go of things mm. and, and relearning, um, relearning a, a new way of life rather than just sort of adopting surface mannerisms. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That that's uh, that. That's a great point. Um, so, sometimes um, people think of Hudson Taylor, who was a British missionary who who met with remarkable success, actually bringing the Christian narrative to to somewhere like China. Uh, and sometimes people look at that and think, oh, it worked. It happened because he wore their clothes, he ate their food, he he ate with mm-hmm. chopsticks. Um, but but this is all superficial stuff. It's it's, it's like you picking up an accent. Okay, but that's what anthropologists call the perhaps the uh, phenomenology of of uh, culture. It's it's what's on the surface of a culture. Um, but I think if this is all that the church is going to do, um, it might be considered more of a sort of a, a play acting. You know, as it's superficial. Uh, and so I you know I, I know a, a lot of Christians who who maybe have adopted the the hipster culture tight jeans beard mm-hmm. smoke a pipe tats you know talk about theology right. with it with a beer in your hand nothing wrong with any of that but if that's mm-hmm. as far as it's going to go and we just keep on communicating to the culture using the same old terms and language that no one really understands yeah. um then, then the way my friend kerry put it she said well uh, it, it might as well just be 90s business casual <laughs> well, she's got a great. Right, that's right. exactly right, uh, and, and I think right. well, most people can just see through this this veneer, this play acting. It's, it's. Uh, I think you put it one time. It, it's sort of just uh, marketing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. One of my my atheist artist friends, uh, he he likes to whenever he hears a Christian band playing on the radio, or he 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 always says, "Jesus rocks." <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and that, that, that's like, so. I mean, that that's that's his that's his take on it. You know, this, right, right, um, yeah, super cool Jesus. But um, you know, I, I think that uh, that from from his perspective, and uh, and you know, in, in some cases, my perspective, when you come across these sort of superficial. Um, uh, manifestations of Christianity and culture or whatever. And I'm not, I don't want to um, undermine anyone. I mean, I think that there's all different levels of, of, of engagement and some, some very sincere, there's some very sincere people and some very smart, uh, amazing people with tats who do drink beers and have beers and all that, that jazz. But I do think that but it's, it's are, about, it's about whether we're staying on the surface and, and just staying with the phenomenology of a culture. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, for sure. And I think that um, that it's just kind of like one of those things where you, you know it when you see it, and when you see it, it's a bit cringeworthy, right? Yeah, yeah. no, no, and it, it feels a bit uh, forced or, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if going back to Hudson Taylor, you know, his success came from actually, actually doing this thing we're talking about, which is immersing himself in the culture. It means we we mm-hmm. we have to be able to understand our culture's greatest angst, our culture's greatest questions mm-hmm. uh, and concerns, and, and to, to own those questions and concerns for ourselves to a certain degree. And mm-hmm. and we and we need to be able to articulate them uh, as well as on, on for our culture, on behalf of our culture, we need to be able to articulate that angst, those questions, those concerns, at least as well as, if not better than, the broader mm-hmm. culture itself is able to do, is capable of. I think we need to be able to, to take it to its extreme. We need to be able to go there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've thought for a long time, 
that um, we need to really stop thinking that being a Christian disqualifies us from the cultural conversation, right? I mean, where, where does that even come from? Where does that, that idea come from? Uh, I think we do ourselves a, a really deep disservice when we uh, fearfully retreat into the safety of our religions or our, or our belief system. Uh, and I think there's very there's something very humbling about submitting to the rules of our inherent cultural hierarchy. Right. Uh, whereas the opposite of kind of seeking that refuge within the religion actually, I think, stems from a sense of, of self-preservation or, or, or pride. Um, the, the, it, is, it is more risky or it is more humbling to um, submit yourself to the culture. And I think that when we do make the decision to submit ourselves to the culture and humble ourselves in that way, then all of a sudden we're kind of throwing ourselves up against, um, well, a, a lot. So, you know, if, if you're a Christian writer, then all of a sudden you're holding yourself accountable to people like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Steinbeck and all these, these, you know, whoever, whoever you, you want to put there. And in my case, as an artist, holding myself up against great artists of, of our time and before and uh, and then when you do that something interesting happens mediocrity just mediocrity is just not even an option anymore yeah um and, and interestingly enough many of those people you just mentioned uh, were were christians or, or dostoevsky was an existentialist christian <laughs> right, right yeah yeah but but i i think um back back in the day when, when the church uh, was producing that that kind of um, literature and, and culture, but yeah, I, I think I think that that is um, that's an interesting point that you bring up about uh, hu pride and, and humility, um, mm -hmm. risk and safety, uh, and and I think mm -hmm. that that's essentially what Paul did. Um, the Apostle Paul he says, look, I, I've become. He says, look, I've become all things to all people. That that doesn't mean that he didn't have a spine or that he had no convictions. Any, right. any way the wind blows doesn't really matter. That, that's not Paul. What, what, what it means to say that I've become all things to all people is mm -hmm. to say that he's, he's immersed himself in the rules and thinking of the inherent cultural hierarchy is the way you just put it. Uh, and that's the only reason why he can go and face the culture head on like he does in somewhere like Athens. Uh, look, here, here are the cultural and intellectual elites, the philosophers, and, and you know, philosophers of different uh, standings in different societies. So, so mm -hmm. um, in, in the, the the French, for example, they they they, they treat their uh, philosophers more like rock stars. In the Anglo world, in the <laughs> Anglosphere, uh, it's more like they're they're figures mm -hmm. of fun, right? We, we sort of poke poke fun right. at them. Um, but he's walking in. Paul's walking into a situation where the philosophers are held with that. Kind of esteem they have have that kind of sway over the culture and so he walks mm -hmm. into the Areopagus. So right. how's how's he going to face this situation? <laughs> well, you know, if you read Paul's letters, he he's borrowed so many images from the Stoics, for example, uh, all the, all right. that talk of the body of Christ that that Stoic imagery. I mean, retooled, turned, repurposed, of course, to make a different point. But but when he was growing up in Tarsus, there, there was this big Stoic revival going on. So he's very familiar with Stoic thinking. Uh, and then he pushes back in other letters uh, on proto-Gnostic thinking, right? So, so in other words, he's very familiar with the rules of the inherent cultural hierarchy. And in some sense, he submitted himself to it to a certain extent. So in Acts 17, in the Areopagus, he, he starts to, to weave together the, their cultural story, their philosophy, their poets, with the, Christi with the Christian narrative. 
Right. So put very simply, he's just going out of his way to bridge the cultural chasm. Yeah. And of course, you know, when he, when he starts talking about the resurrection, they mock him, they laugh mm-hmm. at him, but he'd held their attention long enough um, so that there were, you know, at the end of it, there were others who said, well, what, actually, we're, we're still interested. Why don't you come back and carry on the conversation tomorrow? Um, well, that, that takes it. Uh, don't underestimate the kind of work that's gone into that. That takes an incredible amount of hard work to culturally immerse yourself like that. Uh, and and what he he does in the Areopagus is is done with with this sort of excellence and boldness, which is what you were talking mm-hmm. about earlier. Um, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those moments where he could have uh, you know dropped dropped the dropped the mic if he'd had one, right? Right. Um, uh, uh, but it's it's at the same time it's it's not done for his own glory. There's something very loving, sacrificial. There's something mm-hmm. humble about entering, giving up your own culture and entering into another person's world this way Absolutely. and i think that that's what the incarnation god becoming a human and that, that's that's what it's all about right and i just want to add quickly there you know just because paul was mocked when he started bringing up the resurrection it, it, it it's not that that was just because he was a christian i think anyone who's willing to engage with the, the ongoing cultural conversation is just willing to put themselves out there to the point of criticism uh, being mocked or being rejected. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not, right? Sure, I mean, this, sure. is just, this is just, this is just par for the course as far as, um, as far as the, the, the broader sort of uh, engaging with the culture, if we really are. It's, it's one of, it's one of the risks you take. To expect this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And I think that um, there's a lot of bravery and sort of courage that, that goes along with that. And I think that brings me to, to a point that I've been wanting to bring up um, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately, but um, is maybe a, a strange occurrence of a certain sense of timidity that might be associated with mm. um, with being humble or meek or just being Christian. And uh, and then why, you know, well, well, why is that timidity um, now or somehow, how did that become embedded into the church or Christian culture um, in, in a larger sense? And I, I know a lot of Christians where it tends to manifest in this sort of constant need to apologize. And uh, it's almost as if they have this tape playing in the back of their heads that just keeps saying, God forbid I offend anyone, God forbid I offend anyone at any time ever. Uh, but it seems to me that that uh, is just fearful living. And uh, when you think about the power that, that God has given us, the power to create beauty, the power to communicate, to engage, uh, and to, to be in relationship with one another, then that, um, then all of a sudden that that sense of of maybe leaning towards fear it just seems n- negative to me, or, or it just seems r- wrong. And I, I'm not trying to get self-helpy here, I guess. <laughs> so you know, don't misunderstand yeah. this for me saying you have to reach your full potential. You have to self-actualize. Self-actualization. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not saying that. I I guess I'm just saying that um, that maybe we it is worth our while to come to grips with the fact that we are in relationship with a very powerful God, a very powerful, powerful creator, that the gospel is strong and maybe we don't need to apologize for pursuing excellence or, or uh, we don't need to feel that by somehow becoming a part of the church that we're becoming members of a herd uh, and that, and that accepting Christ doesn't diminish um, our our power in, in, in the slightest. 
Um, so, so yeah, but before all of this went down with the with the pandemic and and everything, mm -hmm. I, I was I was talking to a friend who is really seriously considering baptism in the church. Um, but she grew up in in this sort of new age background, and one very important question she asked was, "Okay, what happens to all those incredible experiences of God I had or thought I had long before I ever had anything to do with the church? What what happens to all those experiences of transcendence I had? That, that does does all of that just get completely trapped? Well, well, what would Paul say to that? And and this is where I think we see this sort of the love and humility, uh, hu love and humility of Paul." even as he makes this very bold proclamation, right? And that this is, again, trying to reconcile these two things that you're, you're talking about here. There, there can be this boldness, uh, and yet there can be this humility at the same time. And, and right. he, has, he has the humility to understand that he doesn't get to carry God around like an idol, taking him from place to place, from one town to the next, from one city to the next big city, as if mm -hmm. he were bringing God to these people in Athens and impose, imposing this, this God character from, out, from outside. Right. Paul recognizes and actually just, just assumes, he has a humility to recognize and, and assume that God has been at work in these people's lives long before he ever showed up. God, God's already at work mm. in your culture. Uh, and, and he says, look, you, you've already experienced them. This is what he says to them. He says, you've already mm. experienced them. You even have a, a statue to the unknown God. Uh, you you, mm. you recognize him in this way. And, and he tells them, look, God is never far off. He, he says, in fact, this God mm. is very, very close by. And, and then he says, look, even your, your own poets, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Because one of your own poets has said, uh, in him we live and move and have our being. Mm -hmm. and, and then what he does is he, he frames their, ex their rich experience with the Christian narrative and invites them to try life out right, right there. Hmm. Stephen, thanks so much. You know, Thank you. This conversation has been really, yeah, it's been really inspiring to, to have this chat and I appreciate your, your willingness to kind of wade through all of this. I know this is on the longer side uh, as far as our conversations are concerned, but I really do look forward to speaking again next week. Uh, thank you so much. Sure thing. And thanks uh, to, to you, the, the listeners out there. Uh, conversations like this aren't meant to be one-sided and I, I try to repeat this at the end of all of uh, Stephen and I's conversations, but we really want this to be a way for you to engage with the ongoing conversation, to really tap in to, um, to, to the conversations that we're having. So please reach out via uh, the website, uh, shoot us a text, an email, um, or just kind of bring some of these topics up during, during the, the Zoom gatherings that we're, that we're hosting, because Trinity Heights really thrives when we all join yeah. in and hash things out together. So I know I speak for, for myself. Yep, I speak for myself and Stephen when when I say I sincerely hope that we can talk soon.